Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to episode 51 of Double Hot Beat. We're taking the pulse of the beer and brewing scene. I'm James, home brewer and beer enthusiast. And I'm Shannon, a beer intermediate. It is time, what you guys have all been waiting for. We are going to be determining the results of our brew-off that we did in March. So today we are joined, we're welcoming back, Caitlin and Gareth from Fenrir Brewing. Welcome, guys. Thanks, thanks. And we're very excited to taste this beer that we've been hyping up for the past couple of weeks yeah the beers are in the yeah, beers have made it right the beers have made it such a long way they you operated. know we had a couple wolves a couple dogs you know a couple whales delivering it you know from massachusetts <laughs> to alaska and alaska to massachusetts so i i, I think uh i thank all the animals to br- that brought uh, these <laughs> delicious beverages to our doorstep hopefully delicious i would say (laughs) (laughs) so we're going to get into the brew day and how we decided on making a blonde for everyone to hear but before we do we just wanted to introduce you guys to our listeners and just get a a idea of what your background is so how did you get into home brewing how'd you start your brewery just give us the lowdown hey everyone so uh i'm gareth we uh we started home brewing well caitlin caitlin my wife she bought me a uh, homebrew kit. I think pretty much how everyone else gets started nowadays. Back in 2014, and uh, it took me about four months to even brew it. Just reading through the instructions, I didn't know any of the nomenclature or any what the gravity this and and all that stuff. So it took me a few months to even attempt to brew it. And uh, it was a Belgian saison. I remember I finally got around to it, brewed it. It wasn't great, but it was enough to kind of spark that that homebrew bug in me and uh, immediately just went straight into all grain without having any of the equipment necessary to do it. And yeah, it's just been brewing ever since then. Uh, this was for us, the Blondale uh, was our 162nd batch of beer that we've ever brewed. Wow. That's a lot of beer. And that's pretty impressive yeah. to be starting with a, uh, a Belgian Ciaison for or one of your first really beers. jumped right into it. Like, holy crap. At least it didn't need to be temperature controlled. So that was a plus. Yeah, that's good. He just really liked them at that time. That's why I chose it. <laughs> I mean, I think the majority of kits are just like, well, here's an amber ale. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, cool, cool. <laughs> a sexy amber ale. Thanks. Or a, or a double IPA, like way beyond anyone's capability. Oh, yeah. Brew. Absolutely. So how long have you been homebrewing for and where have you, how has it had developed over the years? I think we just passed our six-year mark a couple weeks ago, actually. Craziness. Um, we uh, we went, you know, from the, the bucket right next to my bed with the airlock and <laughs> trying to basically figure out everything that was like a problem. The first problem was temperature control. I want to start doing temperature control. So solution to that was they sell these big coolers that you can put your entire bucket into and basically throw frozen two liters in there and and that's supposed to keep it cool. And then after, you know, buying that and it's like, yeah, this is is nice, but it's not working long-term. You go from that to some sort of cooler or fridge and it just evolves and then it goes from there. And now we're at uni tanks and and spike solos and we're we're deep in it now. (laughs) So you've gone from having it next to your bed and you probably, would you tuck it in at night with a little blanket and, yeah. you know. Don't fall asleep, blub, blub. Yeah. yeah. It's like a sound machine. You don't need white noise. You yeah. just need 
a beer fermenting next to your head. Most people have like yeah. fish tanks in their bedrooms and there's Gareth, you know, snoozing away. Counting the bubbles. With his hand over the airlock, just like stroking his beer just as it's fermenting. Pampering it. Making sure it's got the best of everything. Putting Marvin Gaye on, you know. Oh, gosh. And so you guys have a brewery now, right? How's that all going? Yeah, we have a nice nice little home brewery set up in our, our laundry room. We just happen to have a huge laundry room um, that works perfect. The 240 volts there, um, the drain for the washers there for the chiller. Um, I got a hose splitter on the the washer water. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's perfect for it. It's hard to tell if it's a brewery or if it's a laundry room at times. <laughs> but yeah, if you go on our Instagram and check out pictures of it, I, I got them posted from when we first moved in. It's, it's pretty interesting looking. Yeah, our kids call it the brewery. <laughs> Where's mom and dad? Oh, they're in the brewery. Official. <laughs> it's the brewery. So it's named Fenrir Brewing, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So where did that name come from? Because I incorrectly guessed it was Harry Potter related because obviously I just assume mm. everything is Harry Potter related, but it's not. So where did that come from? <laughs> uh, that came from Caitlin. You want to tell them about it? We're just trying to look up names. It seems like everything's taken. I love mythology, Norse and Greek and everything. So I was looking up, you know, different ideas from that. And Fenrir is just Loki's son, giant wolf. It's the logo. Actually, was probably where Harry Potter got it from. Probably, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't a huge, huge fan on the name at first, but over yeah, time it's it. really grown. And it, it also gives us a lot of options for interesting beer names with different myths and stories and whatnot and themes to go around. So it's, it's cool to, to play off of the whole uh, Norse mythology and Fenrir and all that stuff. And with the werewolf, I'm sure at Halloween you've got some good ideas there too. Oh, yeah. yeah. It, it works perfect. I love Halloween. <laughs> I think you guys also have evolved, too, with your logo as well. So, Caitlin, you design the logos, right, for all your breweries and for other breweries as well. Do you want to talk a little bit mm-hmm. about that? I just mm-hmm. come up with different ideas. It's hard to stick with one when you're constantly thinking about it. <laughs> um, I'm actually trying to talk him into new design now. The answer is always the same. Let me see it first. <laughs> <laughs> It'll grow on him just like but, the name. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's like one of the great things about being like a home brewer and having like your home brewery, right? Like you want to change the logo, go ahead and change it. You know, if you're a yeah, craft yeah. brewery, like your logo is everything. Like if they don't know your logo, it's change just everything. Exa- exactly. So we t- talked about the logos. We talked about uh, how you kind of grew with your home brewing setup. Now, you guys have actually won homebrewing competition, so I want to mention this as we're about to critique our own beers here. What was it like to win your first competition, and how many competitions roughly have you guys won together or individually? It was honestly exhilarating. Um, The first beer that I ever entered into a competition won gold, well, blue medal, blue ribbon because it was a fair, and it was just the best feeling in the world having other people that you don't know give you good feedback on something that you're passionate about and made and, and put a lot of work and energy into. And uh, so that, that kind of sparked another bug as far as competitions go. And we've always wanted to open a brewery um, pretty early on. And of course the hardest thing is the monetary aspect of it. So I figured, well, if I can, uh, win a bunch of competitions and, and get my name out there as a brewer. Maybe someone rich one day will come by and be like, hey, I've got money. 
you're a good brewer. You want to start a brewery. So that was kind of the, the thought process behind going into competitions as heavy as we did. Um, I also have to attribute a lot of that competitiveness to the homebrew club that we joined, Browns Point Homebrew Club. There was, you know, a few BJCP certified judges in that club and everyone in that club makes outstanding beer and is very competitive. So we all kind of pushed each other in that aspect as well. And uh, we, I made a run at it for Washington State Homebrew of the Year. I barely, barely won. But the year before that was a member from our homebrew club. And the person that won it after me is also a person from our homebrew club. So, uh, yeah, we keep each other going. And even now that we're up in Alaska and they're down in Seattle, I you know, still attend Zoom meetings when I can and we keep in touch and everything. So uh, I think we have... 83 or 84 medals and then the Washington state homebrew of the year trophy. And I think that's it. That is 83 more than we do. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. that's quite a, quite a few. Just a yeah. Bit. It was interesting going for um, homebrew of the year. I had to, in order to win it, I basically had to make a spreadsheet. Yeah. He planned it out. <laughs> I, I still have it of brew dates, packaging dates, when to brew this type of beer. Um, when to mail off things, their scores, their places. And so every batch that I would brew, if it could age, I would probably bottle half of it. And that would be competition entries. So competition would roll around and they would have like a max of 10 entries. I'd be entering 10 entries. Um, and I'd only have to brew maybe one or two beers for it, the fresh hop, IPA, stuff like that. Anything that won't age, I'd brew those right before. And everything else was already bottled, ready to go from previous batches. So that's basically how I maximized my winning chances. Oh, great. James, do you want to get us started talking about our brew day and our brew off? Yeah, so the whole concept behind the brew off is just because it's always interesting in home brewing to see differences of equipment that everyone's using, what you like, what you don't like with your own equipment, and just community of bringing home brewers together and kind of sharing, especially during the pandemic of kind of having those experiences that you'd either have at a craft brewery, talking with someone who also likes to make their own beer or just your local homebrew clubs or, you know, your homebrew gatherings in the, your neighborhoods of just, oh, I homebrew too. So I guess that was the inspiration behind the brew off mm -hmm. of just, let's get some challenges. Let's, let's have a collaborative brew day and let's kind of make a beer using the same recipe and go from there. So I guess we'll start with the recipe for the brew, this particular brew off. We wanted to do a Blondale. So if you guys want to kind of talk about how the recipe got started, because for those listeners out there, Gareth had a recipe for a blonde that he really liked and uh, has been tweaking over the years. And so we wanted to kind of start with that and kind of create a whole new recipe but we'll go into that in a minute. If Gareth wants to talk, go ahead, Gareth, on uh, your recipe for your initial blonde. It was pretty simple. Um, I remember the, the blondes that I was making were very, very uh, clean. Uh, there wasn't much hot flavor or malt flavor. It was almost more like an American lager. So with this blonde ale, I really wanted to tweak kind of up that maltiness. So I wanted to, I've been tasting some blonde ales lately from other people, and I've noticed a lot of them do have this kind of pronounced nice maltiness to them that I really like. And so I wanted to emphasize kind of maybe doing something a little bit more malty for a blonde ale. And I think so we did 
Uh, the base the base was two row. We did some Munich for some color and maltiness, and we we threw in some flaked corn as well. That that was from a friend of mine who owns a professional brewery, and I tasted their blonde, and I was like, wow, this is amazing. What's your guys' secret? And he he just mentioned there's a little bit of flaked corn in there, not enough to be a cream ale, but enough to kind of give it that crispness. And uh, so we do a little bit of flaked corn in there, about six six point seven percent or so. A little crystal forty, some honey malt, and some carapels. I always do carapels in every recipe just for head retention and all that stuff. Yeah. So what I liked about kind of using a blonde is mm-hmm. just it's a very easy kind of grain bill to go off of. It's not too complicated. It's not too simple. So someone who's followed a lot of recipes can can easily find these, you know, ingredients around their brewery most of the time. And it's also challenging enough where even those most experienced home brewers are always trying to nail this style or make something different about this style. What do you think, Caitlin, uh, as far as a blonde is concerned? Yeah, I think it was a good choice to compare for between our two brews. That way we can pick out, it's easier to pick out differences, not covered up by other things. Um, Yeah, I think that was one of the main reasons we went with blonde so we could showcase any flaws if there are any and we could distinguish those quickly yeah it's definitely a good style for that and also and, because yeah. i said no ipas <laughs> shannon goes because i want to be able to drink it yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah uh so some of the changes so this is the first one yeah so so this well this no, so we this is my a, second one that's art, called yeah illegally blonde yeah our first blonde that we ever brewed <laughs> was called illegally blonde and um, we are very clever with the name on that one. It was decent. It was decent. I mean, we had a little like briefcase on the the label. I'm sure Caitlin could have made it so much better. Um, but we'll have to send you what that yeah. label was, and you could maybe help us with that label. Yeah, uh, is that one of those? Is that one of those beers where you came up with the name first, and you're like, "Oh, now we have to brew a blonde." Ab- abso- absolutely. I'm like, if this blonde isn't drinkable, we'll just keep the name and keep basically what we put on the can. Is we used cashmere um, hops um, for that one, and we'll keep the kind of we'll just adjust it and we'll keep the name, kind of a thing. <laughs> exactly. Like we don't know how it's going to come out, um, but this one we felt like at least. You know, you've brewed it in the past, so at least that gave us kind of like a step up. So it's not just starting a recipe from absolute scratch where it's, you know, a hit or a miss. Mm-hmm. We wanted to try and eliminate as many variables as possible when we're trying to do this homebrewing experiment between two homebreweries to try and l- limit the amount of differences and just go based on style and try and keep it consistent. And I also think to show how you can tweak, like using a recipe that you guys have developed and how it's you are, have the ability to tweak an existing recipe. Like you don't have to just stick to the one every single time you brew it. Like it's, you can definitely adapt it to however you want it to be. So I think that's also why we want to start with a established recipe instead of building one our own, on our own. Yeah. So I think the other great thing from this collaboration was, you know, when we, the four of us sat down um, over zoom and had a conversation of, okay, what do we like in a blonde from our favorite craft brewery? What do we like to experience? Do we want it more malty? Do we want it to have a little bit of a hop flavor, even though blondes typically don't have hoppiness in it? So I think that was really great to kind of collaborate. And I'm sure that's what brewers do all the time in craft breweries. They sit Mm -hmm. down 
and they kind of have those conversations and you have to go by what you like. You know, if you're like, oh, I don't like blondes at all and, you know, I just want it to be an IPA. Well, that's an IPA. So, Gareth, I think one of the most, um, I guess, inspirational things for me working with you and Caitlin in making this recipe was don't tweak so much or by the amounts of each ingredient. Start small and keep those changes very minimal because the second you say you want to add more honey malt, the second you add way too much, you're totally altering your balance. So that's where you kind of talked about percentages. So you want to go into a little bit when you're building a recipe, go by kind of percentage of your grain bill, not necessarily, oh, I'll add three more ounces or 10 ounces. Absolutely. Yeah. The percentages thing is a, is a good way. It's a, it's a good mindset for a home brewer to start getting into is thinking about percentages, especially for certain ingredients, keeping certain ingredients below a certain percentage for whatever beer you're doing. Uh, most of the time, in uh, beer smith or whatever program you're using if you look at the malt ingredient it will typically say it's recommended percentage range and that's a great thing to look at just so you know what impacts it might have if you go over a certain amount and what to expect and yeah definitely building recipes if you're in the if you're in the the, the realm of fine-tuning something definitely go a little less than than too much and go from there and that way you also can see what exactly it's contributing to the beer instead of just going full bore with it and then decide you don't like it and then you don't even brew it ever again. Yeah, and I, I think that was key because I was like, you know what? Like we both kind of like the more maltiness in our blondes. I think we all agreed on that. So we increase, what would you suggest we increase in the recipe to get more maltiness, which I think we achieved in our end recipe? Oh, absolutely. Uh, at first it was kind of funny because when I first tapped this beer, at least our version, it didn't seem to have much of a malt character, even though the the color was quite dark. came out pretty like a, a dark golden color. And uh, at first, the malt character didn't really seem to reflect that. But then after a couple of weeks of it being on tap, it's it's changed quite a bit to where that maltiness is, is coming around. It's very nice. I think we nailed that the maltiness on this beer. As far as like future changes... I'm not sure. This would be kind of hard, maybe uh, change up the yeast to get some different characters out of it. We used a USO4, so maybe try a different yeast that that does some other esters and see how that might affect the beer. That'd be something interesting that I'd like to do. Yeah, I think for the color, ours was like about the four, four range, four, five. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, upper upper fives. Um, Our batch two... Um, ended up being darker than our batch one. So I'd say like our batch one was closer to the four and our second batch was more of the five, almost five on the color. Yeah, Yeah, we've got both in front of us. It's definitely noticeably darker on the second one. And I think we'll talk a little bit about the brew day and what happened, but we think we know why that is on that aspect. So we talked about the basic grain bill. We talked about the yeast that we used. We also had the discussion of I'm more of a hop person, so I want to kind of test the limits here a little bit with the blonde. And let's why not dry hop a blonde, which typically is not done. Not many blondes I've seen do they do a dry hop. So we did a seven-day 
dry hop, just a very small, like, and Gareth, like, you are spot on with, like, let's keep it very low. And I'm like, yes, we don't want to make it hoppy. So we only did, like, 0.2 ounces for us on our five-gallon batch of Cascade. And for you, Gareth, you ended up doing how much on your 10-gallon? Ours was, on the dry hop, 0.44 ounces for okay. the 10-gallon batch. Okay, so just about almost double the hop. So the hops we used, again, Magnum. We did the 60-minute 60, 60 Magnum. Again, very minimal. For us, it was 0.2 ounces. And then we did a 30-minute, you know, your 30-minute boil of Cascade. Again, same 0.2 ounces. And then we did a 0.2-ounce Cascade boil at 10 minutes. And I think you guys were pretty much just double double the ounces, mm-hmm. right, on that? Yeah, yeah, pretty much double, exactly. Yeah, we'll put the recipe up for those people who want to... Uh try to brew it for themselves. All right. So most important thing, if you listening at home or in your home brewery and you watched the live video, you got to see our different setups. So to recap, if you haven't seen that video or you don't have access to our Instagram page at Double Hot Beat Podcast um, or also um, at Gareth's um, Instagram, Gareth, uh, where can they find your brewery? Uh, so mine is uh, Fenrir Brewing uh, on Instagram and Facebook. And Caitlin is at Athon Creative. Yeah, and we'll um, have all those in the episode um, link for you guys so you guys can easily um, find us on our pages. And so on our brew day, uh, we brewed with our grandfather system, which we have finally... All right, well, not RIP, but... It's RIP it's, it's to another... On to it's moved home. on to a, a new home brewer's brewery. And so we'll be talking about that, what I upgraded to in another episode. But we used the 110 volt grandfather which is a great starter for all grain brewing. And again, it's a 110 volt, so your standard household outlet will do. And we'll talk about how our that kind of impacted our brew day. Gareth and Caitlin, what was you guys brewing on for that? So we've got a 20-gallon uh, spike solo. Um, we use a counterflow chiller, and the pump is a riptide. So I'd say that's a pretty, I think we picked, well, our systems, I think, happen to be two of the most common, commonly used all green systems um, currently that people are using. And there's also those that are more experienced that have the trio, spike trio systems or the, just the, you know, SS Brewtech three kettle systems, pretty standard for electric brewers today. So I think we captured that pretty well. So that's, that's a kind of our layout of our equipment. And then we both had um, stainless steel fermenters. So that's another thing to point out here. We both had temp control. Um, so we had a ours in a seven-gallon uni tank from SS Brewtech. And Gareth and Caitlin, what did you guys have? We just recently switched over to 14-gallon uni tanks from SS Brewtech. And before that, we are using the uh, brew buckets from SS Brewtech. Okay, again, great, great starters going from, you know, your plastic buckets to the brew bucket, you know, the stainless brew buckets with the conical bottoms just was huge for sediment, at least in our brewing experience before we moved up to the uni tank. So another experiment we wanted to do is for those we see all the time homebrewers ask, you know, are uni tanks worth the money? They are expensive. Should I just get that or should I just get a conical or should I stick with my brew bucket? And so we also wanted to make this experiment where Gareth and Caitlin would use the uni tank to its, you know, what you're, it's the fully, yeah, the fully design, what it's fully designed for. So that's, you know, fermenting under pressure. That's, you know, using all these other 
things that you don't can't do in your brew bucket. Shannon and I took the opposite approach for our uni tank, and we basically just used it as your standard fermenter, just temp control, a vessel. It wasn't pressurized. So when we transferred our wort and pitched our yeast, uh, we did not carbonate in it. We didn't um, pressurize it. We just basically sanitized it, put in our beer, and let it do its thing. Whereas, Gareth, what did you guys do after your wort was ready, cooled, and ready to go? Well, we didn't use the uni tank to, I would say, its fullest potential by using like pressure fermentation and whatnot. Since this was still relatively new uh, to us, uh, even having a uni tank, we went with a, a standard fermenta- uh, fermentation where um, it's not under pressure. Um, but we did carbonate through the carbonation stone in the uni tank. So uh, we, we dropped the temp uh, near the end and we started to carbonate it. And uh, we pressure transferred to the keg, no filter, um, but we did pressure transfer. So th- those are some of the things that you can do with the uni tank that you don't find on a standard like blue bucket. And yeah, and like I said, on our end, we just used it for the temp control. Uh, it wasn't under pressure. We didn't carbonate it in the uni tank. We let it transfer by gravity um, to our keg. Um, then we carbonated our beer in the keg itself. So that's just a little background on the the kind of differences and similarities behind the brew day. So mm-hmm. why don't we talk uh, lastly about the water profile? So this is another thing that we are all very interested to know of how important water is to a beer or the same beer. So we realize there's going to be differences in our two home breweries, you know, blondes, even though we're following the same recipe. Um, things happen in the brew day, you know, different Uh, climates, different states, you know, you name it. Mm -hmm. But the water, so we wanted to try and keep the water profile the same. And then we did another batch to see if we did, yes, to see if having our home water changed what and what it would do to to the outcome of the beer. So why don't you talk a little bit, Gareth, about the how we treated the water to start to keep ours the same. This one was pretty simple. It's uh, a yellow balance profile in Beersmith, and you can find different profiles with whatever app you're using. Extremely important, in my opinion, uh, water. Just It's not just the flavor of the beer, but it can water can change so much. It can change the mouthfeel on it. Um, what, your overall experience can be altered by just the water chemistry. So in my opinion, a huge thing to get into. And, and if you're looking for that next thing to tweak around with, with your, with your brewing, water is a great way to start. And it does not have to be complicated at all. There's basically six brewing salts or minerals that, that brewers are mostly concerned with. So once you get into it, it kind of gets repetitive and, and you start learning uh, quickly through just experience and doing certain things over and over. So yeah, yellow balance profile, we, it's just a nice profile for anything that is basically yellow, <laughs> I'll say. So we use distilled water. Uh, we recently switched over to reverse osmosis just uh, because of cost savings, but this was all distilled water that you can buy at Walmart or, or your local grocery store. And then the water chemistry was built up from that. So it all starts out as zeros, and you plug in your uh, the profile that you want, and it'll just tell you what uh, minerals to put in. Yeah, I think we also did um, some calcium chloride, gypsum, Epsom salt, Ultra Flow Max, and some salt, table salt as well. Mm-hmm. So, so I think, I, like, I don't know for you, Shannon, but I've always been super hesitant to 
tamper with the water. Just I thought it was so complicated and, you know, such an ha- extra hassle when a brew day can already be chaotic as it is. It was not difficult. It's just like following any other recipe where you just are literally measure, like weighing out your, these different ingredients and just adding them to the water. You're not really messing, mm-hmm. you know, you're not really, uh, I don't know, following too extensive of a recipe or it's not that labor intensive. Not as scary as you thought is what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, we did have a scary moment where we had to uh, call call them over uh, over there in Alaska because you know I could not find the Epsom salt anywhere, and I was losing I was losing my mind. I'm like, so many home brewers use Epsom salt. What the heck? Like, why can't I find this? And he's like, oh, you know, here here's the link. And I'm like, it says on the bag it's used for like taking baths and like not to ingest. And I'm just like. Uh, is this the stuff? Like, and then you reassured me it's just going to be pure Epsom salt, right? Yep, that's the only. Just make sure the ingredients say magnesium sulfate, and that's it. Yeah, so we we had a good laugh at that, and then Shannon took a bath, you know, using the <laughs> remainder because we got like a three pound. Well, I didn't bag use all. Of of, there was there would have been like pounds of salt. I did not take that. Yeah, that much salt in. And and to clarify for those listeners, it wasn't like Shan took a bath in that water and then we used that water for this brew. So I just want to clarify <laughs> that. That's not what we did. All right. Well, before we go a little further, I think what we should do is split this into two parts and we'll come back with our results and our tasting of the brew off. Mm-hmm. 